Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. I'm going to start off today by asking a question. Do you find yourself excited about coming to church? Now, I'm not talking about the kind of excitement that can be stirred up in certain churches by music, lighting, oratory, and pure showmanship. I'm asking whether you find the church itself as in the people gathered in the name of Jesus Christ, exciting? It may seem like a strange question. Sadly, many churches have a reputation of being anything but exciting. Boring is a word that many people associate with church. I suppose that is why some resort to various tricks of the entertainment industry. We do not want church to be boring. But if those things are a substitute for the real excitement we should feel about church, they are ultimately unhelpful. So, what is exciting about church? The assembly, we could call it the church that was gathered by King Solomon in Jerusalem that day, was really exciting. This morning we're about to see how exciting it was and why. Welcome back to our study in 1 Kings. Let's jump right in at verse 6. Then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place, and to the inner sanctuary of the house, to the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark, and the cherubim made a covering over the Ark, and its carrying poles from above. But the poles were so long that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen outside. They are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Forgive me, I should have told our visitors we are in chapter 8 of 1 Kings. In verse 6, the ark finally reaches its destination. It is placed in the inner sanctuary. Indeed, with the ark there, that room now becomes the most holy place. It is a place where God will meet the high priest once a year and forgive Israel's sins. Of all the furniture that Solomon brought into God's temple... The most important by far was that sacred box that represented the very presence of God Almighty. It was called the Ark of the Covenant because of its contents. The Holy of Holies was the throne room of God. It was an earthly copy of the place in heaven where God resides. In effect, the ark was God's throne, or else the footstool for God's throne. One scholar calls it the transportable throne of Yahweh. Now the symbolism of this would not have been lost on anyone that day in Israel. For during the Feast of Tabernacles, people lived in tents or temporary shelters as a way of remembering God's faithfulness to them during all all those years in which they wandered through the wilderness. But now that their wandering days were over, and they had a more permanent place to live, so it was time also for God to have a dwelling place too. Although a tabernacle was suitable for the wilderness, 
It was time for God to symbolically come home and live with his people in that land as he had promised. But first, maybe I should backtrack and explain the why and when of the ark before this. To understand where the ark was and why, it helps to know a little more about its history. For 40 years, the Israelites carried the ark with them in the wilderness as they wandered from place to place. Whenever and wherever they camped, they would put the ark inside of the tabernacle, which was the portable dwelling place of God. When the Israelites finally entered the promised land, the ark of the covenant led the way. Eventually, they set up a tabernacle in Shiloh, which for many years was the place where Israel held its assemblies of worship. At some point, the tabernacle was moved to Gibeon, and while on its return, the ark was housed separately in Kiriath-Jerim. However, King David wanted the ark closer to Jerusalem, so he organized a huge procession to bring it into the city by ox cart. This was a memorable trip because at a certain point when the oxen stumbled, a man named Uzzah reached out to touch the ark and died instantly. When David realized how holy the ark was and how dangerous it could be to transport it, he decided not to take it to Jerusalem after all, but to leave it in the house of a man named Obed-Edom. But God blessed Obed-Edom and eventually the king decided to bring the ark all the way back up to Jerusalem with great rejoicing. Just as the ark had blessed Obed-Edom's house, David wanted the ark to bless his house in Jerusalem. By the time Solomon built the temple, therefore, the Ark of the Covenant was already in Jerusalem. However, it was not up on the temple mount, but somewhere lower down the mountain in a tent that David had pitched for it. But now it was time to bring the Ark all the way up the mountain. We are told that inside there was nothing except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed there at Horeb. Now these tablets bore the very words of God that defined his relationship with his people. That is, the covenant that he made with them in those days when he had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. This covenant was God's gracious commitment to them. This is what that ark represented. The same covenant that Moses brought down from the mountain with all its promises and commands was the only thing left now. Now this comment probably is intended to clear up any possible misconceptions about Aaron's rod and the jar of manna that they were still there as well. Those items were placed alongside the ark but never inside the ark and by Solomon's time they were no longer available for placement in the most holy place. So here however we see the only thing left are the Ten Commandments within that ark. I also personally believe the Holy Spirit included this information to help us come to a very important understanding this morning. That is, signs and wonders, budding rods and manna, as wonderful as they are, are not lasting. What lasts, what endures, What is absolutely essential 
is the Word of Almighty God. According to Jesus, the greatest prophet who ever lived was neither Elijah, who called down fire from heaven, or Moses, who parted the Red Sea. The greatest prophet who ever lived did no miracles whatsoever. And yet all the things he spoke of Jesus were true. The greatest prophet who ever lived was the one who said, I must decrease and he must increase. The greatest prophet who ever lived was a man who simply pointed people to Jesus. According to Jesus, the greatest prophet that ever lived was John the Baptist. And like John the Baptist, you might not be able to perform signs and wonders and miracles, but like John the Baptist, you can tell people about Christ. And before I move on, I hope we fully appreciate that God's Spirit now dwells within every believer in here. Because if we understand that God is everywhere and that Jesus is with us wherever we go, then everything in our lives will be filled with a sense of divine holiness. The same God who is adored by angels and dwells in awesome majesty is also living in us by His Holy Spirit, thus making our hearts a sacred space. Therefore, anywhere a believer stands is holy ground, even in places of darkness and sin, because wherever we go, the glory of God goes with us. Furthermore, every conversation is an opportunity, a holy opportunity, that the Spirit can use to help us bear witness of the gospel of the crucified and risen Christ. That is why the Bible calls every Christian a saint, which means a called out or a separate one. Verse 10, please. And it happened that when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. This brings us to the most dramatic moment in the story of Solomon and of the Ark of the Covenant. It was the moment when God descended in unapproachable glory. The whole worship service had been spectacular, with dozens of trumpets blaring, hundreds of priests singing in unison, and thousands of people celebrating the glory of the house of God. But shortly after the priests carried the ark out into the temple, they came running back out. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the place of the Lord. So that the priest could not stand to minister because of the glory of the Lord, because the cloud had filled the house of the Lord. Now if that rings a bell, something similar happened when Moses entered into the tabernacle. The moment he finished making a house for God, the glory came down then also. As we read at the end of Exodus, it says, And the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. As it was in the days of Moses, 
so it is in the days of Solomon. Here we encounter a mysterious irony, or perhaps an ironic mystery. The temple was the one place on earth where people could go and meet with God through the ministry of a priest. But when the temple was finally opened for business, no one could enter because God was just too glorious. Make no mistake about it. The true and the living God cannot be put in a box. Even a box as beautiful and great as Solomon's temple. The cloud was so overwhelming that it forced the priest to retreat from the temple. There's an important truth here. And it is this. It is God's presence that makes a temple God's temple. Without the presence of God, Solomon's building was nothing but an empty shell. And the same thing is true of each of our individual lives this morning. If we are not inhabited by and walking in the Spirit, we are a poor facsimile of what God has intended for us to be. What people saw that day is what theologians call theophany, which is a visible manifestation of the invisible God. It seems like when God appears to his people in the Old Testament, typically he did so in the form of a glorious cloud. This was the same cloud that Moses and the children of Israel saw when they traveled through the wilderness and again when they reached God's holy mountain. It was the dark and glorious cloud of the presence of God, a physical representation of his divine being. This cloud was infinitely the most glorious thing at the temple, which for all of its golden splendor was made glorious only by the presence of the Lord. The cloud both is Yahweh's glory, and yet it covers Yahweh's glory. It both reveals and conceals. The cloud and thick darkness signify that there is a certain hiddenness about God. And there is much about Him that we cannot see and that we do not know. Here's how the Puritan writer Matthew Henry described what Solomon's temple would have been without God. He writes, The temple, the richly beautified, yet while it was without the ark, was like a body without a soul or a candlestick without a candle, or to speak more properly, a house without an inhabitant. All the cost and pains bestowed on this stately structure are lost if God does not accept them. And unless he pleases to own it as the place where he will record his name, it is after all but a ruinous heap. I like that. And you know what? We could say the same thing this morning about the church of Jesus Christ. We are nothing without our God. This is true of all church buildings. Is anything more tragic than to see a magnificent house of worship where God is no longer worshipped, where the gospel is no longer preached, and where the Holy Spirit is no longer present in His saving and sanctifying power. 
That same principle also holds true for any ministry in the church. Unless the Lord is with us, none of the things we do in church, none of the teaching and preaching, none of the caring and sharing, none of the mercy work or the missionary evangelism will make any difference whatsoever to the kingdom of God if he is not in it. But when God is in the house, his word will go out with power and his spirit will change people's lives from the inside out. But we will never be able to manage or to control God. We will never be able to keep him in one place and say that we know everything there is to know about him. There will always be some glorious mysteries about the character of God that will go beyond our finite comprehension. The more that we encounter him, the more awesome his glory is going to seem to us. Since the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, God's glory has resided in each one of his children individually, as well as the church local and the church universal. And until Jesus comes to take us to our eternal glory, our privilege and responsibility is to bring Him glory as we serve Him here on this earth. Verse 12, please. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said He would dwell in the thick darkness. I have truly built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David and fulfilled it with his hand, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel from Egypt, I did not choose a city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house so that my name would be there, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who will be born to you, he will build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spake to my father, for I have risen in place of my father David. And I sit on the throne of Israel just as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I set a place for the ark, and which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. I first want to point out the phrase that Solomon said when he said, The Lord has said. It would be easy to pass over this point, but it is absolutely fundamental in our understanding of the passage. Solomon understood that this historic moment was astonishing for one reason and for one reason only, and that was because God had spoken. I fear that many Christian people today are sometimes so familiar with this that we can tend to take it for granted. That is unfortunate to say the least. Of all the wonders that the Bible teaches us, this is absolutely essential. It is central to all that we have. The God who created all things 
has spoken. Now, that is either true or it is untrue. If it is untrue, then everything in the Bible, everything that Christians believe is fanciful. And in the words of the Apostle Paul, our faith is in vain. And we should be pitied by all men for living our lives like fools. But if you're a Christian this morning, you know that it is true. Now in addition to that, Solomon responds in awe of God's decision to actually descend upon that temple. As one commentator says, He is the creator and at the same time the God of Israel who has condescended to fix his throne in the midst of his people Israel. As all these events transpired, Solomon's attention had been directed at the temple. But now, as the spiritual leader of his people, he turned away from the temple to face the assembled crowd and to address them before his prayer. You see, the temple is now a new feature of Israel's national life. But the people needed to recognize that it was not just a human innovation. It was grounded in the plan and the purpose of God. To accomplish this, Solomon directed the people in his brief message to the person of God and also to the nature of the temple. The temple dedication was not only a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, but also of the covenant that God made with his people when he brought them out of Egypt. That teaches us this morning that God is a God of persistent faithfulness. That temple was the culmination of God's promise. God not only graciously dwells with his people, but he also gives them his word and faithfully keeps all of his promises. That's the major theme of this section. For in it, Solomon glorified Jehovah by reviewing the history of the building of the temple. The king was standing on a special platform and all of them had just seen a marvelous manifestation of the glory of God. And yet, Solomon opened his address by saying, the Lord said he would dwell in thick darkness. But why speak of darkness when they had just beheld God's radiant glory? Solomon was referring to the words that Moses spoke on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19.9, which says, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. There was indeed a thick cloud of darkness on the mountain where Moses went, and he went into that darkness, it says, with great fear. So Solomon was connecting the events of, that, of Israel's past experience at Sinai. For the people of God must never be cut off from their roots in their history. God's presence in the thick darkness first encountered at Mount Sinai had traveled with the people of Israel on their journey from there. In this respect, the tabernacle had been kind of a portable Mount Sinai. Now we know that God is light and that he dwells in light. 
But we also know he cannot fully reveal himself to mankind because no one can look at God and live. So really, the emphasis at Sinai was on hearing God instead of seeing God. Lest the Jewish people be tempted to make images of their God and worship them. Like the church today, Israel was to be a people of the word by hearing it and then obeying it. King David envisioned the Lord with darkness under his feet and darkness as his canopy. Once again... There is a mystery about God that should humble us because we don't always understand Him and His ways. But that mystery also encourages us to trust Him and rest upon His Word. Solomon didn't want the people to think that God was now their buddy or the big man upstairs and therefore they could just speak to Him any way that they pleased. God doesn't need the temple, but the temple needs God. And it is really foolish to trust in the temple as if there was some merit in the building itself. Now this is going to become a troubling issue for the first readers of 1 Kings who sat in exile at Babylon aware that this temple had been destroyed. You have to wonder if they thought, what does that mean for the Lord himself. Has the Lord been defeated or damaged? They needed to recognize that while the temple had contained God's presence in a special way, it had never contained or controlled his person. The same is true today. This building we're in this morning, this is not the church. About 17 years ago, this was the Department of Agriculture. We tore down the office walls in this sanctuary to make it a sanctuary. You should have seen me slinging that sledgehammer. I can't build stuff, but my brother says I can tear up hell with a paper hammer. But you know what? When we leave this morning, the church is going to leave with us. And this, once again, is just going to become an old brick building. The house of the Lord that Solomon had built in Jerusalem anticipated the spiritual house that the Lord Jesus is now building in each one of us this morning. The stones of that house are the people who come to the Lord. And Jesus himself is the precious and chosen cornerstone. The gathering of people who come together because they have come to Jesus, that is the church that Jesus is building. But really, Christian people have something even more breathtaking. I've mentioned it already. God has promised to dwell with us. This is not now in the thick darkness, nor does it have anything to do with the physical building. Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and we will make our home with him. Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
At this point, we should appreciate that the presence of God is not a subjective feeling as if in, I felt God's presence. Now, feeling can be great, and I think we all felt something this morning. I like a quiver in my liver as much as the next guy. But our feelings in and of themselves are a poor guide to spiritual reality. God is present where and how He has promised to be present. And He has not promised to be present in our feelings. God remains transcendent in majesty. He is the one and only God, infinite in power and perfect in glory. His ways are above our ways, and His thoughts are above our thoughts. We cannot see the fullness or the awesome glory or even comprehend the perfection of His eternal attributes fully. Simply put, the triune God is far above us. So Solomon's blessing is going to focus on God's faithfulness. And since this is one of God's familiar attributes, we need to be careful this morning to give it the full respect and attention that it deserves. And the reason is, the other gods in biblical times were hardly known for their faithfulness. Ancient Near East deities did not receive high grades for fidelity. One theologian writes, Indeed, even if, even if a pagan deity assured you a blessing, you cannot be sure of that assurance. For some other deity might exercise his or her veto power and cancel the benefit thought to be guaranteed. But you know what? We can have the exact same problem with our little deities. You know, it's those little gods that we sometimes use to help us make our way through life. What do I mean? Well, we try to worship pleasure, but our appetites just grow, and we're never satisfied. It's like feeding a fire with gasoline. We might trust in money, but we find that it can't buy us love or even any kind of security. We might depend on other people, but sooner or later, they may let us down. Earthly deities are faithless, and all lesser gods are going to fail. Yet God, it says, is faithful from the beginning to the end. This was Solomon's experience. So as he blessed the Lord, he thanked God for the many different aspects of his faithfulness. God was faithful in keeping all of his promises. Now, this promise was originally given back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God said to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But the sequence of these events also should remind us of how many times we may have to wait on God to keep His promises. And let me remind us that many of the promises that God gave to David 
David did not receive in his lifetime. That means you may have prayers answered that you're praying right now that you're not going to see on this side of eternity. That wayward child or spouse or family or friend may be the answer to your prayers long after you've entered eternity. Thus, like us, King David had to live with some disappointment. His dream of building a temple was commendable, and the Bible said he did well to have that in his heart. Yet God told David that someone else is going to be doing the building. Thus, David had to live in faith in God's promise, hoping that God would do what he said, even after David was gone. And in keeping his promises to David, God was being faithful to honor his own name. And God's name really just means his reputation. We use a similar expression when we say that someone is making a name for his self or herself. Now if you look at it, God's name is mentioned many times in these verses. The lesson I want us to all take away from this this morning is that God is always faithful. He is faithful to keep his promises working out his plan of salvation. He is faithful to be with his people bringing honor to his name. And so to end today's study, there has never been a promise that God has not kept or will not keep when the time comes for its fulfillment. Have you seen God's faithfulness in your own life the way that Solomon saw it? Let's remember this morning everything that God has already done for us. He has been faithful to keep His promises. He has provided for our daily needs. He has forgiven our sins. He is faithfully working out our salvation. God is faithful to call us, justify us, adopt us into His family, and sanctify us. And best of all, one day soon, He is going to glorify us. These are all promises that God has made in Christ. And He will be faithful to fulfill them. Why? Because the Bible says all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. And if we are ever sometimes tempted to think that God has not been faithful to us, then it must be, be, be because either we have not been paying careful attention or else because we have been expecting God to do something for us that God has not promised to do. He has not promised that we will have financial prosperity, only that He will meet our daily needs. He has not promised us a life free from suffering, only that He will be with us through every trial before bringing us home to glory. He has not promised to tell us even our own personal future, but only to give us the guidance that we need day by day. Or perhaps the problem is, we are too impatient about God's timing. I've been there. In which case, we need to wait for Him to fulfill His promises and trust Him to do the right thing when the time is right, which He is always faithful to do. 
So as we recount how faithful God has been in keeping all his promises, we should be sure, like Solomon, to do what he did and bless the Lord for it. Let us pray. Father, you are the faithful God. You said you are the author and the perfecter of our faith. You started our faith and you said you will be faithful to complete it. It is hard sometimes in this world that we walk in to believe that when we see darkness abound, not just on the outside, but even the darkness of our own hearts sometimes. But you have justified us already, Lord. That is done. And you are sanctifying us, O God. Continue to do so. And I pray that we would just once again go all out in our service for you. If there's anything that we are holding back, anything that is not of you, make that real to us and show us what we need to do to fix it. For you are faithful to do such things. We ask in Christ's name, amen.